I'm going to be reading from Luke 1, 26 to 66. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will, be, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, sorry, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is this the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed, and the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe, 
and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, on page 10. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Afternoon, it's great to see you. My name is Rowan. I'm the assistant minister here if I haven't met you. Um, in this Advent season, we're still looking at the early chapters of Luke's Gospel. And so today we're looking at Mary's, uh, the, the, the announcement of Angel Gabriel to Mary. So um, let's pray as we look at this together. Father, thank you for your word that you reveal yourself to us. Our Father, as you revealed yourself to Mary through uh, the angel the good news of a son that was to be conceived and born, uh, who would be the son of the Most High God. As we consider him, his work for us, and while that was good news then and now, we pray that you might thrill our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's that time of year, I don't know if it's been popping up on your, uh, your feed, but the, the showreel for 2019 on your social media feed... All the highlights tend to emerge. Uh, I might be showing my age a slight bit more, but uh, the uh, Christmas letters come into the inbox uh, with uh, the information about the year that was for various families and friends. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating to look at them, isn't it? Because both the social media feed and the, uh, the Christmas letter phenomenon in and of itself uh, they're always upbeat, aren't they? Uh, they're milestones. They chronicle adventures, new hobbies and loves and things that have been happening. Um, and in one sense, uh, there, there are sense, there's a sense in which, it, because it, 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 it curates a certain vision for us and shows us what the year's been like, uh, it has us believe that, that Christmas is, is this celebration of, of all that's good. It's kind of a race to the top. Um, but the reality is, isn't it, that our years have been 
many kinds of things, some up and some down, ups and downs. Uh, and so as we look at the feed uh, through social media or even the letter, there's a, there's a filter applied uh, that we see because airbrushed out usually are all the rubbish parts of life. Often what we present outside is, is different from what is going on inside. Now, there's, there's good reasons that we do this, obviously. Uh, one person writing about the Christmas letter writes, yes, you don't bear your soul to, to 75 of your closest friends, uh, but it's an interesting combination, this, this performance for people who are close enough to require an update, yet at the same time not close enough to be trusted with an honest one, uh, the raw reality. Um, you know, Christmas is this race to the top, the curation of a beautiful family celebration, a beautiful Christmas letter, a beautiful life. Um, but this author goes on to say, but this really inverts the story of, uh, of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke that we read about in the Gospels. See, we can give this story of shepherds and angels, a rustic, chic, manager-style crib, a nice filter. We can make it all look cosy, but that's really an airbrushed version of the Incarnation. And she puts it beautifully this way, this author. She says, the movement of the Christmas story is actually a race to the bottom, not the top. It's not a story of positivity, but of vulnerability. Not of vanity, but of humility. The invulnerable, glorious creator of everything opts to enter into the chaos of creation, into the humble state of humanity, to submit to its dangers, frailties, and constraint in order to redeem. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? I mean, often what we celebrate uh, what we chronicle in our milestones are those things that, sh that kind of are a race to the top, but actually, as we read this story, it is a, is a race to the bottom. It'd be an interesting kind of feature to kind of have your, your Facebook feed and then your Spotify playlist over the top, because, you know, as, as, as you look at Rowan's Spotify playlist, you'd be like, ooh, a lot of Ryan Adams and Nick Cave there. It's been, it's been dark. It's been a hard year. Uh, maybe there, there'd be a true reflection. It'd be quite funny to watch. Anyway, uh, so as we look at this story, we're, we're, we're again taken to the birth of, of Jesus, the Son, and it's this race to the bottom. In, in today's announcement, uh, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call his name Jesus, and he will be great and called the Son of the Most High. But as we read this story, it even though we're familiar with it, it's a story that, as we read, it should seem like something that we're not quite expecting. It's kind of a reversal of the way things ought to be. The God of the universe becomes incarnate in a, in a manger, uh, in the backwater in, in Jerusalem. It's a race to the bottom, and so we're going to consider that uh, as, we, as we think about this narrative in the early chapter of, of Luke. So... And go through the story and then make a few reflections to close. Because in this story, it's not as we would expect. The visitation, uh, the conception, um, the expectation of what his leadership will look like and what will be accomplished. So firstly, we see in verse 26 is the visitation. Uh, the scene opens in Nazareth. We're told Mary is... is, is uh, addressed by the angel Gabriel, and, and she's said to be betrothed to Joseph. Um, as you read the scriptures, any time an angel turns up, 
good or bad, it's significant. Um, it's, it's kind of a type scene that you want to kind of look at and think, oh, hang on, something's about to happen. Something is going to be announced, and it should draw our attention in. And this is no different. Um, as we read this with Western ears, we think angels, really? Um, see, in the West, we tend to, to think about um, that, that we are alone in the universe, and the universe is, is, is all that there is, whereas the biblical worldview uh, is different. It says that there is something that stands outside of creation, a creator. But then also, the biblical worldview says that there is another intelligent order in creation, that of, of angels, good angels and, and fallen angels. And so as we read this account, this is a significant point. An angel has showed up. And so this angel turns up, Gabriel, and says that Mary will conceive of a son, and he will be the son of the Most High. And then he paints the expectation about, well, what will this son do? In verses 29 to 23. And she's told many wonderful things that this son will do. And in verses 29 to 33, it kind of echoes Old Testament again, the language of, of kingship, the language of sonship, the language of, of his reign and rule being something that's good and powerful. We're taught all of those things, and they kind of carry Old Testament baggage with them. And so of this child to be conceived, we can expect that he will be a king, that he will be a son with God the Father. Uh, he will exercise his power and authority for good, and he will rule forever, we are told. Again, all the expectations of the Old Testament promise of a future king who would establish God's rule and reign uh, forever are, are laden in there, and he are told that this is the son. He will relate to God the Father as, as a son. Now, this is an announcement of good news. But, I mean, in, in a week like the one we've just had, where we've seen governments and rulers held to account, it's a week where we've seen actually that the checks and balances on leadership actually exercised. Yet to see what happens. But they're put to good effect. Why? Because we want to limit absolute power. Because, as the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what we tend to expect. And so, so this announcement of good news of, of a king who would exercise absolute authority... Uh, who will rule and reign forever. We tend to expect that that will be abused, but this is a picture of good leadership, good authority, a good reign, bringing peace and justice. It's painting different expectations to what we might assume. So Gabriel paints the different expectations of his king and his rule, his coming, and, and particularly the way in which he will rule his people will not be as expected. And as you go through the gospel, you can see that people don't expect the kind of authority and rule that Jesus brings. And then, it's certainly true that it's not what we would expect of, of the conception in verses 34 and 35. Mary is told that she'll give birth to a son. She's currently without child. We're told that she is a virgin. She has not slept with any man. She's betrothed to Joseph. 
And again, immediately, like where angels turn up in the Bible story, any time there is a woman without child in the Bible story, our ears should turn, because usually laden within that is an expectation that God is going to choose to bring life and choose to uh, drive forward a story of, of promise and hope through this situation. See, miracle babies feature heavily in, in the Old Testament because in this space, God brings, brings life. And so the promise here is that this conception of, of a son for Mary will be of the same kind. It will be a miracle. Yet this one will be exceptional, for she is a virgin. Again, this is not as one would expect. This is not what Mary expected. We're told that she, upon receiving this news, in, in verse 29, is trouble, and she wondered at this. Uh, that word wondered uh, and sought to discern about this. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a rational process at play as she thinks about this. She knows that babies are formed a certain way. Babies then were formed the same way as they are now. She knows this. She's not naive. And so in 34, she rightly asks, well, how is this to be? And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. So this child will be born, conceived by God, the Holy Spirit. And again, there's lovely echoes of the Old Testament here. So just as, as the Spirit hovers over, over the waters in creation and brings life, so too here the Holy Spirit is pictured overshadowing, hovering as it were, over the, over the womb of Mary to bring new birth and new life and new creation. So within it there's this expectation that God is bringing and choosing to bring life where there is not. God the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and creates in her womb a body, a fully human body, for the Son of God to take upon himself. And this is, this is, is so significant in, in our understanding of, of what is happening in uh, the, the path of, of salvation. But it's strange, and we have to admit that a virgin birth. What, what, why is it significant? Why, why, do we, why do we need the virgin birth for uh, this story of redemption to happen, as it were? I just wanted to kind of take a, a brief section just to, to give us three reasons why that is important, significant, and essential. Why the virgin birth? Well, well three things, because it shows us three things. Firstly, it shows us that, that the sending of the Son and our salvation are completely the sovereign work of God. The sending of the Son and our salvation are completely the sovereign work of God. So if you look back at the other miraculous births in, in the Old Testament, they are, are miraculous in the sense that there's human agency involved, but there's also prayer and the work of God, whereas this conception is different. Uh, hum, hum, human will is not at play here. The conception of Jesus does not involve human desire or involvement, but rather it's, it's a divine decision of God, a sole undertaking of, of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this work of salvation is the work of God, sovereignly 
overseeing the whole thing. And it's similar in the ways that we speak about becoming a Christian. The Apostle John says this in John 1, that we become, in Christ, uh, we have the right to become children of God, born not of human decision or natural descent, but born of God. Christopher Ash writes this, what becomes true of us spiritually by new birth, entirely by the decision and initiative of God, echoes what is true of the Lord Jesus' supernatural conception. So the virgin birth is necessary because it shows us that his sending and our salvation is not based upon us, but purely upon God and his initiative. But secondly, it also shows us that, that it's not as if Jesus became the Son of God or, or adopted, um, became adopted as the Son of God in time. Rather, Jesus is always the Son of God. Jesus is, is one person and always has been the Son of God. But at the incarnation, he, he takes upon himself a human nature. So Jesus has always been the one Son of God. He possesses a divine nature from eternity. Yet at this point in the Bible story, at the incarnation, Jesus assumes a human nature in Mary. And again, this is strange, but, but it is significant. So there was not a time in Jesus' life when he was anything other than the eternal Son of God made flesh. He is one person with two natures. That's exceptional, it's important, and the virgin birth helps us to understand how that works. We don't understand why it's that way, but that's how it is. That's how it's presented to us. And finally, it shows us that Jesus, in that sense, is, is like us, but yet without sin. That's how it speaks about him in, in Hebrews 4. So Jesus, at the incarnation, assumed a human nature. That means he became like us. And that's, that's really significant for us as we think about this, because he became human like us. Not, not, he's not kind of, um, you know, dips his toe into creation, doesn't really understand it. He, he jumps right into this earthly life. This baby would grow to know trials and temptations that, that we know and experience. In Hebrews 4, it says that he can empathise with us in our weaknesses, it means he, he knows what it's like uh, to face trials and temptations from, from the inside. He didn't just dip his toe in, he entered the world marked by corruption. He emptied all the way in and he lived a human life with trials and temptations. And so he is the great high priest who can sympathise with us. That's a great comfort to us. Uh, there's a great quote by, by Dorothy Sayers who... Um, was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. She was a novelist and essay writer, and she writes this. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty 
and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. It's quite a lovely quote, isn't it? Jesus knows. He didn't, he didn't just dip his toe in. He entered fully into our world and our experience as a human being. Yet, Hebrews 4 tells us he was without sin. Through the Spirit, he, he obeyed his Father perfectly, and that meant that it, it qualified him to redeem us from our sins, to overcome death and defeat evil. And so that's, that's why it's significant. I'm sorry to have to kind of take some time to, to explain that, but it is, it's, it's a key part of our understanding of the Incarnation and what it means uh, for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. So here in this, this hidden moment, as, as the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary's womb, as it were, there were no spectators, no ultrasound scans, no fanfare, but the eternal Spirit of God creates a body for the Son to take upon himself in order to save us. It's a, a point captured beautifully in our second reading. But finally, then, there's the reception. And again, it's not what we might expect. And it's interesting if we, if we read this in light of last week's sermon in, as we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and their news that they received upon, um, from, an, from, a, from a messenger as well about a miraculous birth. See, they too received news of a, a miracle birth. Um, but the contrast that Luke paints between Zechariah and, and Mary is, is significant. See, if you look at Zechariah, he had the kind of cultural pedigree. What was counted as important and significant then, he was a male, he was older, he had the vocation of a priest, and he worked within, as a priest, in the temple in Jerusalem. In that culture then, that was hugely significant. He was a somebody from somewhere that counts. But then Luke paints for us this picture of, of Mary. Uh, she was a woman, and in the ancient world, they did not ha have or share the same standing necessarily. She was young. Uh, she didn't have a vocation like uh, the spiritual pedigree of a priesthood. And she was from Nazareth, which is a kind of nowhere suburb in the ancient world. So if Zechariah was a somebody from somewhere that counts, well, she was a nobody from nowhere that matters. Yet the way Luke presents these two characters is we, we see that Mary evidences and, and, and responds rightly in true faith. Now, you'll remember that Zechariah, upon hearing the news, questions how this might be. Whereas Mary responds by saying in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, may your word be fulfilled. May your word to me be fulfilled. Upon the news that she receives, she believes God, the God who speaks, of which verse 37 says, not, not a word of God will fail. It's not what we might expect. We expect what we saw with Zechariah. But actually, Mary responds with faith, despite appearances. She's enabled by grace to believe and to obey she willingly surrenders herself to, to God's word. She recognizes she doesn't have all the answers, but she follows the path of obedience. And we shouldn't let the significance of that escape us. 
The path of obedience for Mary will mean shame, it will mean hardship, it will mean eventually heartbreak as we read the Gospels we see. Yet Mary responds with faith, entrusting herself to God. Enabled by grace, she willingly submits herself to God's word. It's interesting even there, the the connection between faith and obeying. Uh, She hears the word of God, and she trusts it, and she obeys. She surrenders herself to it. I am the Lord's servant, may your word be fulfilled. In this sense, this is where Mary is, is significant. Uh, in, in the Catholic Church, Mary is, is deified, almost. But So we tend to, in, in Protestant circles, be a little wary of Mary, whereas actually, she's certainly to be respected. She is an example of someone who hears God's word, entrusts herself to it, and obeys And as the scriptures here paint for us, she is a favoured one. She is unique in the sense that God chooses to use her in his work and purposes to redeem a people for himself. Let's just think about some concluding thoughts, the significance of this for us. Again, the whole story is, is not what we expect. I think that's what makes it so compelling um, remember what we celebrate this time of year usually, the race to the top. But we've seen that this isn't a story of positivity, but of vulnerability, of the glorious creator of everything. In our second reading, in, Hebrew, uh, in Philippians, it says that Jesus was in very nature God. And what do we see? We see him opt into the chaos of creation. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He submits himself to all that uh, the human nature is, is, is open to, the dangers of frailties and constraints, and he does that in order to redeem. That's the wonder of, of the incarnation. But in our Philippians reading, we see that he is obedient to death, even death on a cross, but he is lifted up then and those who trust in him will be lifted up to the highest place with him. He came all the way down, entered into our mess, to redeem and lift us up out of the mess and enable us to share in his life. So how are we to respond? Well, we live in a world which celebrates the race to the top. Um, And and that might just be partly a a protective measure, isn't it? Because we can be scared of, of showing vulnerability, uh, the raw reality of things. I know certainly I want to present, the temptation is to present a certain way. Whereas this story reminds us of, uh, of, the, of the, the Christmas is, is, as Natasha Moore says in her, in, her, in her piece, a race to the bottom. It's about humility and, and, and the, the creator of the universe who entered into our mess to redeem and lift us out of it. And so that means that we can come with our vulnerabilities, our brokenness and our rawness and know that we will be lifted up with Christ. Look how Mary responds in verses 46 to 56 with the announcement. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, this is verse 46, 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And then in verse 51, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. We celebrate the race to the top, but here, Mary celebrates the race to the bottom. It's the humble who are lifted up and the proud who are scattered, the proud who are brought low. The Christmas story is a race to the bottom. So if you're struggling this Christmas, if you, you know, looked back to your year this year and you've, you've struggled, well, know that God is mindful of our humble state. And he knows it from, from the inside. He knows our frailties. Therefore, we, we can come to him. No airbrushing or filter needed. Christopher Ash says this, God always lifts up those who have nothing to contribute, people who look unimpressive, people who are morally messed up, people who are hungry. So if, if we read this as someone who belongs to Mary's son, Jesus, well, like Mary, we, we read this as good news because we are undeserving, yet in humbling ourselves, we are lifted up. God reached down to us as he did to the lowly Mary and blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. And the spirit that helped Mary to grasp these truths is the same spirit who helps us to grasp the blessings that overflow to us in Jesus. The realities that are true of us despite what our year has looked like, good or bad. But there's also a flip side to Mary's song in these closing verses. See, God lifts up the humble, but he says he will scatter the proud. Scattering in the Bible is a, is a form of judgment. You see it in the Tower of Babel as man and his pride builds his tower. God confuses them in their languages and he scatters them as a form of judgment. So scattering the proud is, is, is God rejecting the proud. So if we make much of our, our race to the top, either by being proud and thinking too much of our achievements... This kind of pride fed by success, or, or we can show our pride in, in the flip side in thinking highly of ourselves but wallowing that, that things aren't going the way that we want them to because we expect them that they should be. Well, we're reminded here to humble ourselves before God. We need to watch out that we are not proud for the sun will scatter us. So it's a warning to turn to Christ. So the encouragement here is for us to to rejoice with Mary in God's kindness to her as it overflows through her son to us. It's an encouragement to humble ourselves, to recognise that in humbling ourselves, the Lord will lift us up. And finally, uh, the encouragement there is to follow the way of the son, the path of humility. In that second reading in Philippians 2, we are told that the son made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death. He gave and gave and gave. He entered into our mess in order to bring us into relationship with him. Well, well pride is, is us turned in on ourselves, whereas the path to life and flourishing, we are told by Jesus, is looking outside of ourselves. Well, the Apostle Paul, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility... 
value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interest of others. So we follow the way of the sun, the way of humility. Humility, as Tim Keller says, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And it's the path to life and flourishing. So as we consider this, this Christmas, this story, uh, we see again that it's a race to the bottom. We delight in the son who, who entered into our mess so that we could be restored into relationship with, with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're to humble ourselves before him. And in humility, we are to take joy in giving service to him and others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful announcement of the son who was to come, who entered into the fullness of our human experience, yet was without sin in order to redeem us and to restore us into relationship with you. These events were necessary and so significant. So we pray that they might not be lost on us at this time of year. But we pray also that they might not just be intellectual truths that we think about or stories that we know or truths that we can recite, but that might take functional uh, reality in our lives that we might be those who humble ourselves before you, delight in the Son's work for us and not in anything that we can do to contribute to our salvation, but also in love of you and others, look outside of ourselves and serve and give as our Lord Jesus did. In his name we pray. Amen.